Well, as you know, a few weeks ago I told you that I would be doing a series on wine drinking. And uh, after I made the announcement, I had a couple come up to me and say, we're really glad that you are going to be speaking on wine drinking after the holidays. I think they meant it tongue-in-cheek. I thought it was rather humorous. But for many people, I would have to believe that this is perhaps the first time that you've studied this subject in any depth. And is it no wonder that we have so much confusion amongst Christians on this subject when so few people have really, I think, honestly come to the text and said, what does the Bible say? You know, that's the task of the church, is to ask that question, what does the Bible say? And uh, we don't have to be afraid of that. I think it was Spurgeon that said that uh, defending the Bible is like defending a lion. You know how you defend a lion? You let him out and you get out of the way. And that's what I have tried to do on this subject, and hopefully I'm doing every week, is to uh, let the Bible loose and then get out of the way and just let it uh, do its thing. Well, let's quickly review what we studied last Sunday Uh, And if you were not here and and, uh, any of these points seem interesting to you, then you really need to get the tape available in the Media Center. Uh, But what we saw last week is that on the subject of uh, drinking, that drunkenness is always a sin. It is always a sin. It has always been a sin. It will always be a sin. No questions asked. In fact, very few people are confused on this subject. So we didn't spend a lot of time on that. We moved on from that to study... Uh, wine in the Bible, and I gave you the different words that are used for wine, and we saw that uh, in each case that uh, the wine of the Bible was fermented. Now, that doesn't mean that every time it's referred to it is fermented wine, but we know that uh, it was in most cases the kind of alcohol that you get drunk on. And from that, then, we saw point number three, and I sure hope that everybody heard this loud and clear. If you were to study all 235 uses of the word wine and study all the other words and all the other inferences, what you would find is is that the Bible's strongest emphasis is on warning, warning concerning uh, the use and the abuse of alcohol and the effects that it has and the the destruction that it wreaks in the life of uh, men and women and families. At the same time, though, we have to honestly say that the Bible stops short of calling it a universal sin. We saw that because in the Old Testament, it is actually a part of the prescribed worship in Deuteronomy 14. We also studied, I think it was Psalm 104, that said that that actually praised God for the making of wine. And I made the little joke, imagine coming to church and singing a song, Great is the Lord, great is the Lord, he is holy and just, and he has made wine for us. You know, you'd probably think, what kind of church is this? But yet, that's the Psalter, that's the hymn, uh, the, the, the song. And so then we also studied the life of Christ and saw him making 150 gallons of fermented wine in John 2 and uh, some of the accusations that were made against him by the Pharisees. So we had this dilemma then. On the one side, you have all these strong warnings about the use and the abuse of alcohol. On the other side, you have uh, these uh, instances in which it is actually seemingly okay. So what do you do? With that, and that led to then uh, this point that not everything that is less than wise in most circumstances is a sin. 
We have to be very careful not to put wisdom issues in moral categories, that God defines moral categories, we do not, and that the application of wisdom is something that all of us have to do in the various circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, I went on to say that I believe that uh, wine drinking is unwise in most circumstances for the following reasons. The temptation to drunkenness in our culture is greater than it has ever been. It's everywhere. You watch football this afternoon, they're going to be trying to convince you that you will be happy and you will be uh, uh, successful if you drink their particular brand of beer, as an example. You go to the restaurant, uh, you go to the grocery store, everywhere you go, it's all over and it's stronger than it was in biblical times. We also saw that the associations of alcohol are morally perilous. Oftentimes it's not just the alcohol itself, it's what goes along with it that gets us in trouble. A word to the wise, walk, with, walk amongst the righteous. Read Psalm 1, for example. The hazards that impairment and judgment bring. Did you happen to notice the grooves in the, in the, in the lawn as you pulled into the church? I showed you the pictures last week. A man just a few months ago, that uh, we're not sure exactly what happened, but he either nearly lost his life or he did lose his life right in the front of our church because he was uh, driving drunk. Okay? There's hazards associated with it. We, don't, we live in a high-paced, fast-paced culture. And then the connection that our culture makes between alcohol consumption and an immoral lifestyle. And that's maybe not true all over the world, but it's something to consider in terms of Christian testimony and what you can do to maximize your gospel witness. Then, Sunday night, we uh, dived into Romans 14. And what we saw was that Paul there clearly says that wine drinking is one of the disputable matters. It's a matter that some people are going to come down on one side and other people are going to come down on the other side with. And so then the question is, well, how do we get along? Because the same thing would probably be true in this group right here I'm looking at. We'd have different opinions on this matter. How are we all going to get along? And he says in the passage that uh, there are two groups of people. There are the weaker uh, brothers and then the stronger brothers. The stronger brothers are those whose conscience uh, allows them to have freedoms in Christ and freedoms in these areas, and the weaker brother is the one who does not. And so... Uh, the stronger brother has a responsibility. And that is that he is to limit the use of his freedom for the sake of the unity of the body. Not to just go around, uh, you know, showing how strong his faith is. I use the analogy of Gold's Gym where I work out and how uh, there, you know, the, 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 you got the, the strong that walk around flexing their muscles in front of all the weaklings that are there. They don't like the weaklings. And neither do I. I didn't think that was funny. <laughs> There's also then not, not to be a, a haughtiness, a looking down on the weaker brother. And the weaker brother has a responsibility as well. The weaker brother is not to judge the stronger brother's freedom and, and, and to, to sort of self-righteously say, I can't believe that he's doing that and, and to sort of look down on him in that way. And secondly, he is not to violate his conscience in any way. The last thing that I would want to see uh, take place as a result of speaking these series of messages is that somebody here whose conscience does not give them freedom to participate in wine drinking, to go out and drink wine. That would be wrong. That would be sin for you. Don't violate your conscience. If your conscience says, don't drive a green car, don't drive a green car. Now, 
You could be wrong, and maybe God thinks it's okay to drive a green car, but if your conscience says it's wrong, don't do it. Don't violate your conscience. Now, our consciences can be informed, they can change, and hopefully they do as we mature in Christ, but the point is still true. That conscience is there for a reason, and if you violate your conscience, you are not acting out of faith, and for you, it is sin. Again, Romans 14. And then finally... If wine drinking is a big deal to you, then you've got a problem. And I'm not just talking about drinking too much. I'm talking about, stronger brother, if this is a big issue to you, and you're, I'm going to drink my wine and nobody can tell me what, you've got a problem. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that matter. And that wine drinking, it's not that important. Weaker brother... If you're here and say, I can't believe anybody would be claiming themselves to be a Christian would ever think about doing that kind of thing, and, I, and on and on you go, if it's a big deal to you, you've got a problem. It is not a big deal. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. I told you, if I never speak on this again, it's fine with me. This is not, this is not a big uh, uh, sort of point to me. I want to go on and talk about the Lord. I want to talk about righteousness and peace and joy. This is a minor thing. So, don't let it be a problem for you. Let's put it right where it needs to be, way down the priority list of our truth uh, uh, issues. Now today, I want us to go back to our primary passage from last week, which was Ephesians 5. So if you could turn there in your Bibles, and we're returning to this uh, primary verse, verse 18. But we'll begin reading in verse 15, Ephesians 5. Apostle Paul here writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 18 is a little odd, don't you think? If you look at those verses there, why... Why would Paul decide to pick on drunkenness in verse 18? I mean, why pick that? Why not pick cheating and lying and stealing and cussing or, you know, some other vice of some kind? Why pick drunkenness? Well, the reason that Paul does is that drunkenness here is really providing an illustration for him. It's not the primary point of the passage. He has a real concern, a deeper truth that he's trying to, to get to. So this verse is not primarily about wine drinking. And by the way, this series is not primarily about wine drinking. If you leave these last two Sundays and say, well, that was a great series on wine drinking, I have failed miserably. This is not primarily about that. There is a deeper truth, and we see it in verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So the real goal that Paul wanted the Ephesians to shoot for was not the state of not being drunk. Double negative. He's not just trying to keep them from drinking. 
His real goal here is that they would be filled with the Spirit. You know, Christianity, friends, is not just a matter of what we don't do. It is much more a matter of what we do do. Most people think Christianity, oh yeah, there's a bunch of people that don't do stuff. When in reality, if we were living it probably more the way that we should, people would be saying, well, Christianity is much more about doing stuff. And here there is a thing to do, not just simply a thing not to do. And I can hear some of you, probably, when I said, oh, I'll be speaking on on wine drinking, uh, probably thought to yourself, oh, well, that's going to be a complete waste of time for me. Because I already know that I don't drink wine. I don't ever touch the stuff. So this has nothing to do with me. Might as well uh, sleep in if it's a cold morning. And none of them are here today. So why am I saying this? I don't know. (laughs) Because it's a very cold morning. In reality, you may be as far away from God's will as the drunk. Not... Drinking is no guarantee that you're filled with the Spirit. So to obey the command here, then we better understand what it means. And so that's really what we're going to be talking about today. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And there is both a comparison and a contrast here in verse 18 between being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. So let's talk about the comparison first. The question comes up whenever you talk about this. Okay, well, drunkenness is a sin, but... Uh, Drinking wine may not necessarily be. Well, then, how drunk is drunk? How drunk is drunk? And we all know what the the law of the land is. Of course, I say that. First service, I thought it was uh, .10, and the whole, like, they all shouted out at me, No, it's .08! Which, that doesn't surprise me with first service crowd. That's probably a weekly concern for them. You know, because they all seem to know that it was .08. It only confirms what I've sort of suspected about them. So that is when you are legally drunk. But when are you morally drunk? When are you morally drunk? You ever seen a drunk? You probably have. What does a drunk look like? I mean, there are indicators of being, of being uh, drunk, right? Now, I, w- I want to illustrate this, and I'm going to ask George Parker if you'd come up here to the front. George is a favorite one of guy I like to pick on. Come right up here to the front if you would. And what I have here is I got this from one of our local police departments, and this is something they use in their uh, demonstrations, and what it does is it uh, simulates uh, drunkenness. In fact, somebody probably could tell me the percentage, I forget, but it simulates uh, drunkenness through the, through the goggles. So, George, I want you to put these on for me, okay? Well, you know I've never been drunk. Of course not. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now... I have picked the wrong guy up here because <laughs> George loves the spotlight. All right, now let's do a couple tests. Can you uh, please just reach out and touch your nose? <laughs> All right. How about uh, do the, the two-fingered, can you bring them together? 
<laughs> All right. Okay, now, here. I want you to walk down the aisle now, okay? Just take a walk down the aisle. All right? <laughs> okay, you can stop there. You can stop there. Now, stay there. All right, now, I want you to catch this tennis ball, all right? <laughs> I'm going to bounce it into you, okay, so this will not hurt, but see if you can catch it, okay? You ready? <laughs> Why don't you pick that up, George, see if you pick that up, okay. All right, just walk back down here now, okay? All right, there you are. All right, let's give him a hand, would we? You take those off. Thanks, buddy. Wow. There you go. That's okay. Thank you. Now, what's the point? We all know that there are indicators when somebody is drunk. It does something to you. You're under the influence of the alcohol. And here, as we talk about it and talk about filling, recognize that the drunk is being controlled by the alcohol. The alcohol is uh, changing his view of reality. It's changing his words. It's changing his thinking. It's, it's changing his, uh, his body. And it is on that level that Paul wants us to see the similarity. The similarity between being filled and being drunk with the Spirit and being drunk with alcohol. To be filled with the Spirit is like the control of the alcohol. Superficially. Don't look too much past that. But it is like that. He changes your behavior. He changes your perspective on reality. He changes your words. He changes your priorities. In fact, he controls you like the alcohol controls the drunk. And that's the comparison that Paul's trying to make. Now, as we talk about filling, though, we have really a concept that we have to uh, overcome. And I think there's a lot of misconception about the filling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would even say this, that uh, in churches like ours sometimes, whenever you talk about the Holy Spirit, people get a little bit uh, antsy, like, <laughs> the Holy Spirit. We don't want to talk too much about that because we all know what that leads to. We really don't, but it's scary. Something out there, you know. And there really is, I think, a de-emphasis, unfortunately, on the Holy Spirit in, in, in many of our churches. When, of course, he is, to say he's prominent, is the great understatement of the year. So what does it mean to be uh, filled, then? And we typically think about filling like when you're at a restaurant and your water is too low. Along comes the waiter or the waitress and says... Can I fill that up for you? Or some of you might remember the olden days when there was full-service gas. Remember those days? And you pulled up, and what would you say to the attendant? You would say, fill her up. So we look at filling as something that, I, when I have something but I don't have enough of it, then I need more of it. So I go to the gas station and I say, fill her up, or I say to the, to the waiter, uh, fill her up. And so then we take that concept and we apply it then to being filled with the Holy Spirit and we think that it means that I don't have enough of him. And so we pray a prayer like this. Lord, give me more of your spirit so that I can be filled up with him today. Which defeats the meaning of what it means to be filled with the spirit. 
And I want to tell you why. Here's why. Because when we receive Christ as our Savior, lots of things happened in that moment. Suddenly now we are, we are forgiven. All of a sudden now we stand as righteous before God. Right away we become his sons, adopted into his family. We are given eternal life. We also are given the Holy Spirit. The presence of God within us. He comes spiritually to dwell within us. And this is, for example, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So Christian, if you're here, you have the Holy Spirit. And remember, the Holy Spirit is a person. You don't just have a part of a person. We don't have a part of the Holy Spirit. We have all of the Holy Spirit within us there to manifest the presence of Christ in our life, to develop the character of God within us. So we must not then think of the filling of the Holy Spirit like we think about our gas tank when it's low, where I need more gas. We don't need more of the Holy Spirit. We have all of the Holy Spirit from the moment that we're saved. He tabernacles within us. And so the analogy to drunkenness here is very applicable. To be drunk is to be under the influence or the control of the alcohol. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under the influence or the control of the Holy Spirit. Now some of you are saying, wait a second, if I already have all of him, then why the command to be controlled or filled uh, by him? Here's why. is because the indwelling Holy Spirit is not the only spiritual reality at work within us. There is another indwelling that is there. We still have indwelling sin in our lives, every one of us. When we're saved, it's not that sin is eradicated from our life, it is still there. And so, for example, Paul says in Romans 7, here he's speaking as a Christian, he says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there beside me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Did you see that? Indwelling sin. Here you are today. You've come to church. uh, You've sung songs. We've prayed together. We've greeted one another. You have uh, heard a little bit of the teaching of God's word. You're here doing a righteous thing. You know what else is going on in every single one of our hearts? Evil is there. Sin is there. When I go to do good, like go to church or something like that, there evil is right beside me. It's going on. There is a battle that is going on within us. Galatians 5, 17. The spirit battles against the flesh. The flesh battles against the spirit. And it is a battle for control. Who won that battle this week for you? As you look back on this week. How about yesterday? As many of you probably with your families. Who won that battle yesterday? Well, the verb here means to be filled with the Spirit, and it is a, in a tense that means a continual process. This is not a one-time experience that you have. Like, okay, yeah, I was filled with the Spirit. Done with that. It is a continual process. It is a continual need that we have. But we still have not answered the question of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So I want to tell you uh, 
uh, that right now. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit in light of what we've seen? It is not us getting more of Him, but Him getting more of us. Can I say that again? The filling of the Holy Spirit is not a matter of us getting more of Him, but Him getting more of us. Him getting more of our thoughts. Him getting more of our attitudes and actions and goals and priorities and, and uh, motivations in our life. It is a matter of control. Indeed, we are to be filled with the Spirit, to be completely controlled by Him, which, by the way, will never completely happen in this life. Did you know that? We will never achieve a place where we are completely filled with the Holy Spirit, where there is no longer evil right beside me when I go to do something, where everything is totally under his control. It won't ever completely happen. Which is why uh, I will never get to the point of not having to submit myself again to the Lord. Let me give you an illustration of this. I grew up in a church in which there were two decisions that all young people were expected to make. The first one was the decision for salvation. And so, in vacation Bible school and Awana and all these different things, there was an emphasis on that, and rightfully so. Okay? No problem there. The other decision that all young people had to make is they had to make the decision to rededicate their lives to the Lord. Anybody uh, sort of connecting with me, the rededicate my life to the Lord decision? Which was also a big deal. So, when you would go to camp or some place like that, a youth retreat or something, they'd have the speaker up there and he would get to the end and he would say, and now with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, I got a question for you today, brothers, sisters. I got a question for you. I need to know today, do you know the Lord as your Savior? Do you really, truly today? If not, I'm calling you down the aisle, brother. Would you come, please? And for some reason I'm Southern as I do this. And that was good. But then he would get to the second one. And now, young people, I got a question for you today. I want to ask you today, is the, Lord, is the Lord the Lord of your life? Have you had a year away from him? Is today the place that God has brought you to give your life back to him in a way that you should have done long ago? Your parents are praying for you today. Your grandparents are praying for you today. Your church is praying for you today that you would rededicate your life to the Lord. And I'm calling you, brothers and sisters, down here to the front to rededicate your life to the Lord. And so you know what we did every year? Down the aisle we went, throwing the pine cone in the fire, giving our life to the Lord again. And we'd get back from there, we'd stand before the church, and all the adults would be there, and we'd get up and say, well, I, uh. <laughs> Teenage boys are always, uh, you know. <laughs> I rededicated my life to the Lord. And all the adults would be out there, oh, that's so wonderful that he's done that. Now that's all taken care of. Have you ever wondered why do men come back from Promise Keepers all excited all, I mean, and, and genuinely giving their life at something like that, giving that, the control of their life to the Lord. In a sense, filled with the Spirit, they come back. Or the teenage, or women from like Women of Faith or something like that, or, or the uh, teenagers coming back from some retreat or camp. Truly, genuinely excited. It's written on their face. It really is an exciting thing to see God at work in their life. And they say, I am not going to do what I did before. I am going to be different from this point on. I have given my life to the Lord again. 
And then like a month later, they're still sort of, you know, excited about it. And then like two months later, they remember that they did that. And three months later, they're right back to the way that they were before. What's going on? They are failing, and we are failing to see that the Christian life and filling with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time experience. It is not something that I do just at camp. You want to know when this will be an issue for you? Tomorrow morning when you're walking to the shower is a time to say again that day, I'm taking the pine cone, I'm throwing it in the fire today, and Lord, today I want you to rule in my life. Holy Spirit, I want you to fill me for your purpose. I want to be controlled by you in every aspect of my life. It is a continual process. It is not a one-time thing. It's a daily battle. The effects of which are as obvious in the life of the Christian as alcohol is in the life of the drunkard. But if I was you, I probably would get to this point and say, well, that's all fine. I want to do that. And I really think that we have many people that want to be filled with the Spirit here. The question is, how, how do we do it? How does that happen? Is it just a matter of going, okay, Lord? I mean, what is it? And the verse goes on to uh, tell us. Go back to verse 15 now, Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, regretfully, the NIV here puts a period at the end of verse 18, which gives the idea that verse 18 is one thought, and then verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, etc., is another thought. But in reality, in the Greek language, it is one thought. The speaking, speak there is better speaking. In other words, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the, what's going on in verse 19 is both the expression and the means of which the filling in verse 18 takes place. So now we can sort of see, well, how does one get filled with the Spirit? Number one, we see in verse 19 that thanksgiving to God is a yielding of, of control of our life to the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is obvious in the opposite. If I have a circumstance in my life that I deem bad, and I respond to that circumstance with bitterness, who am I yielding control to? The flesh. If I have a circumstance that I deem bad, and I, and I, I give in to anger, Who am I giving control to? The flesh. If I give in to violence, who am I giving control to? The flesh. We understand that. We've all been there many times. But when I respond with thanksgiving, what am I doing? I am yielding my right to self-manage my life. To the Lord, and I'm, I'm trusting in his sovereignty and in his goodness, albeit in the midst of a bad circumstance. What I am doing when that, with that is I am giving control over to the Lord. I am filling myself with the Holy Spirit in doing that. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Learn to give thanks in all things. That's what he says in verse uh, 20. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything. Does anything sort of slide out of that circle? I don't think so. Always give thanks for everything. 
And when I do, I'm giving control to him. All too often, we look at these things in our life like, my, well, I, w- I would be filled with the Spirit if it wasn't for my stupid husband. Or I would be filled with the Spirit if it wasn't for my boss. Or I would be filled with the Spirit if it wasn't for this pain that I have here. Or I would, we look at all these things and say, those are the things that are keeping me from being filled with the Spirit. Those have got to change. No. We need to learn to give thanks for those things and yield the right that God has to rule in our life. And when we do that, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's not a matter of shaking or barking or any of these other things to be filled with the Spirit. It is a giving thanks to God. Giving thanks. Secondly, we become filled with the Spirit through the effect of God's truth within us. This is so interesting. Look at verse 19. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, most of us probably read that passage and we say, oh yeah, that's that singing thing that we do on Sundays. No. Notice what it says. Who are we singing to here? To who? One another. This is not a singing to the Lord. This is a speaking to one another truth. And again, it's not like we meet each other in the hallway and, hi, hi Bill, hi, Frank. Almighty fortress is our God. You know, something like that. If that starts happening around here, we are really in trouble. Because I've stood next to some of you while you've sung. <laughs> he has a whole other thing in mind here, and we see what he has in mind in the parallel passage, which is Colossians 3.16. I have it here for you. Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians uh, chronologically very close, and it's almost as if he was meaning to write the very same thing, although there's just a little bit of difference. In Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay? Now, wait a second. Which is it, Paul? Are we to be filled with the Spirit when we do that, or are we to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly when we do that? It's two sides of the same coin. How do we say that? Well, because the Word of Christ, by the way, is a, um, an idiom for the Scriptures. Who inspired the Scriptures? The Holy Spirit did as he guided human authors to write the very words of God. So, therefore, when the word of Christ is dwelling within me richly is another way of saying the Spirit of God is within me. We might even say is filling me, controlling me. There's two sides of the same coin. And we're to teach and admonish one another the word I've seen this in my life. There are some people that I've had the opportunity to get to know, and they always seem to have, like, a a, a word. You know, a word for you. Like, hey, I was reading my Bible this week, or I heard on a sermon the other day, or something like that, and sometimes these people make us feel very uncomfortable. You want to know why? Don't they make us feel a little ashamed when we run into people like this? Because we think to ourselves, I don't have anything on on my mind. I haven't read anything lately. What's going on? The word of Christ is not dwelling richly within me. And yet, when you run into these kind of people, in spite of maybe feeling a little bit of shame, don't you leave with a sense of the presence of God in your heart when somebody exhorts you in the Lord like that? That's what I have found in my life, and I wish that I was more that way, and it's been a challenge to me, but I want to challenge you with this point that we are to do this to one another. 
Now, most of us are much more comfortable talking about our children or talking about our job or talking about our favorite sports team or talking about what we did in the weekend or talking about some favorite hobby. Do you want to know why we're more comfortable talking about those things? Because those are the things that control us. When the Holy Spirit controls you, the word of Christ is dwelling richly, and there is a word on your lip, a truth for somebody else. And we are to exhort one another. And by the way, another implication of this is that we need to surround ourselves with people who are that way. I hope that this church is a place where that is going on all the time. If you were to listen in the hallways, what are people talking about? Not that it's wrong to talk about IU losing yesterday, for example. It's not wrong to talk about that. We should talk about that a lot. <laughs> or Iowa beat Michigan State or anything like that. It's okay. But if that's all that you hear, or if that's most of what you hear, then is, is this a place that the word of Christ is dwelling richly in people's hearts? That's one reason I love our kinship groups. You know one reason that we have our kinship groups and one reason I encourage all of you to be a part of it is because we need to have a place in our life where we get together and there is a context to talk about spiritual things. You're not going to get that in the world. You probably won't get that here on a Sunday morning. Why? Because we bustle in, we bustle out. How are you, Frank? Nice to see you, Joan. Back out to the car and back home and back to lunch. Little snippets of conversation. We need to have a time where we're exhorting one another. It is the application of Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18. And I hope it goes great tonight. You know, while I was preparing this message, actually, almost at this very point, I received an email that I want to share with you because I thought it fits so well. And I have it here. You can read along. As I mentioned to you before Christmas, these are people in our church, We have been looking forward to your series on drinking very much. This is a topic we have discussed with each other and our Christian friends as we strive to better understand the word. So here's somebody that's, they're longing for truth. As a third generation alcoholic, recovered, recovering, this topic is especially relevant to me. As you may have noticed, my wife was not at Sunday night service. She was in bed battling an illness that has been making her various degrees of miserable for about four weeks. She is feeling better now. I share all of this because she was very disappointed to miss a third of the series. Fortunately, thanks to the power of the internet, I was able to share your sermon and the corresponding scripture with her on Wednesday night. This was a great experience because, number one, now she won't be behind when we hear the finale on Sunday. See, I love that language there. This is the grand finale. Number two, recreating your sermon for her helped me understand the message that much better. And number three, it provided a great forum to stimulate thought and conversation to help us grow as Christians. There's a marriage that's on its way. A husband and a wife talking about spiritual truth. Husbands, when was the last time that you did that with your wife? Shared a verse with her? shared a thought from a sermon, shared something that the Lord has been teaching you, wives to your husband, parents to your children, brothers and sisters in Christ to one another. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Get the Word within in such a way that you are sharing it with others and receive that blessing from other people as they talk about it. 
It's with one another. It's not just sing out on Sunday. It's with one another. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Number three, you want to be filled with the Spirit? you got to get happy in Jesus. you got to get happy in Jesus. Notice, again, what it says there. And this, this, is, this is great. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. What is the instrument of praise? Do you have to be able to play some instrument or sing well or something like that? No. The instrument is the heart. I can think of no better definition of joy, Christian joy, than that one right there. Singing over Jesus in your heart. Don't you love that? To be happy. And here we are back on a theme that we've talked about many times in Philippians, where Paul was satisfied in Christ. He measured and treasured the value of Christ, and he said, you know what? Christ is more valuable than all the things that life has to offer. I count it all loss compared to gaining Christ. What was he doing as he wrote that? He was singing over Jesus. He was happy, satisfied in having Christ and Christ alone. And friends, anytime we treasure something or somebody more than Christ, here's what happens. It steals away our satisfaction and it removes the control of the Holy Spirit in our life. We are possessed by whatever possesses us. And anytime something stands between Christ as our supreme value, it gets in the way, which is why this truth is much broader than merely alcohol. If you're here saying, well, you know, I don't drink alcohol, so I guess this isn't for me. Wrong, wrong. Listen, friend, if you don't get drunk, it doesn't mean that you're filled with the Spirit. And it may not be alcohol for you, but your addiction to money or beauty or sport or success or drugs or family or whatever you want to put in there is a joy robber and a control robber. It takes away the control of the Holy Spirit in your life. We do not control idols. They control us. And you read the Old Testament. What did Israel have to do with idols? Did they just put them in the closet? Did they kind of hide them under the rug? No. What did they do? They got rid of them. And if you're here as a Christian, you're saying, I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to know that joy uh, that comes as a result of having the Holy Spirit controlling within my heart. Then I've got to tell you something. You can't have that and the other things that you're valuing in life. It's got to be Christ and Christ alone. Spurgeon quote, I use it all the time. I looked at Christ and a dove of peace flew in my heart. I looked at the dove and it flew away. You can't add. You you can't love God for his blessings. You've got to love him uh, as the blesser. You can't love Christ for what he does for you. You've got to love Christ for who he is. And when you're there, the Holy Spirit is in control of your life and changing you from within. And it does change you, just like the, uh, the drunk. It looks like something. What does a, what does a, a spirit-filled person look like? Is it somebody that's just all the time giddy, walking around all the time, you know, uh, blessing people or something? No. Galatians 5, this is what a spirit-filled person looks like. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You want to know if you're spirit-controlled? Are these things evident in your life? Because when the Holy Spirit is in control in here, these things are evident out here. Love? You a loving person? Joy? Self-control? 
One man said, I, I liked it, it's, when you're filled with the Spirit, you don't, you don't lose control, you gain it. You gain it. So, I want to do with this little series what Paul did in Ephesians 5.18. And that is to use everyone's interest in wine and alcohol and drinking to point to a deeper and more important truth. And that is to allow God's Spirit to control every aspect of our lives. And I think for some of us, if we were half as concerned that our brother was filled with the Spirit as we are that he might drink alcohol, we would be a more Spirit-filled church here. You say, well, wait a second. Drinking alcohol is dangerous. Not being filled with the Spirit is more dangerous. And let's remember that intoxication is the devil's cheap substitute for a spirit-filled life. That, I love that point. The world, he always twists and perverts and gives less satisfying options. Don't settle for less. Don't settle for less. Go for the best. And the best is being filled with the spirit and under his control and the fruit that comes from a life like that. But it doesn't happen by accident. You, you can leave here today. You can be like the fool in James who looked in the Word and left and didn't think anything of it and say, well, I guess I'll be filled with the Spirit now and go on your way. It won't happen. It does not happen by accident. It is tomorrow morning walking to the shower and saying, Holy Spirit, I give you everything today. Please help me. And then seeking to bear his fruit in your life. So remember, he is all there. He is all there. You don't need more of him. He needs more of you. And there isn't a Christian here for whom that is not true. And Bethel, let's remember, let's remember that in these matters of wine and all the other disputable matters, that there are more important things. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Listen now. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And let's be a church that pursues those things with, with all that we have. Let's go after those things. Let's be about those things and let these other things have a place but be way down the priority list. And let us have the joy of the Spirit, which he offers in abundance.